if all these things are happening and you aren't doing anything about it, you may not be causing the issues, but you're now a part of the problem. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Black And, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm Jonathan. And I'm April. And we're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and what white people looking to make a difference can do. On this episode, we're excited to share our conversation with Reggie Shuford, the executive director of the ACLU's Pennsylvania chapter. But before that, Jonathan, what's on your mind? So I've been thinking a lot about civil rights generally um, ahead of our conversation with the executive director of the ACLU. And so I, you know, I just think that there have been so many sort of civil rights challenges and violations over the past few years, in particular since the Trump administration came into power. Um, There have been so many of them that we're just sort of numb to them, I think. So I just wanted to sort of, I don't really know how to articulate this, but I just kind of wanted to chat about them and sort of sit with them for a little bit and talk about them through the lens of of race, as we normally do on this show, before we um, enjoy our conversation with, with someone whose whole lot in life is um, fighting for civil rights and challenging these some of these policies in the court systems. Does that make sense? Yeah. So are there particular violations you want to talk about or just... So, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's a few that are just sort of at the top of mind. Like, there's still, like, right now, there's still brown kids in cages at the border, and that was a completely sort of fabricated emergency and was this huge talking point out ahead of the 2018 election because it would seem that Trump was trying to sort of rally his base around that point, but no one really talks about it anymore. And it's, they're still there. Like they're still, it's admitted by the administration that this policy was put in place to, to be a deterrent for parents looking to come here and thinking about bringing their children. There are literally thousands of children, still children, still taken from their parents and are in these sort of detainment centers. And I just feel like that is something worth bringing up. And again, how does it relate to race? Oh, I don't know, because no immigration from any other countries, white countries, are the point of contention and the point of political debate the way that Mexico is. Granted, we have a a high number of immigrants from that country, but there's no, it it has been politicized and made to be um, a huge sort of talking point more than any other. We have all sorts of folks come from all over the world, and the only time you ever hear anything negative is when it's from brown countries. The, you know, I'm thinking back to, you know, Donald Trump talked about these African countries and some Central American countries sending folks here, and he called them shithole countries. Um, That's the president just speaking about other races of people from other places as less than, as other, and it's completely normal. Yeah, he's only used terms like rapists and murderers with 
immigrants from Mexico. Yeah, I just, I don't know. It just... Sweden. Right. The Muslim ban, I mean, they kicked off the administration in 2016 with the Muslim ban, which was struck down by the courts. Multiple iterations of it were struck down by the courts, but it has since now been passed. A version of it has since now been passed, and they had to add things that make it less obvious that it is meant to restrict people from Muslim countries, but it is just, that's law now. That's a part of our law and our society, and it's just a straight-up infringement of people, not only in the basis of ra- on the basis of race, but on religion as well. Um, and again, it's like, that's just, we just don't really talk about that anymore. What about things that are a little closer to home? There are things that are, that deal specifically with people from our country. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think about, like... I think of voter suppression, right, is another sort of civil right that is just being trampled on. Like, this is, you know, folks being in black and brown communities disproportionately being purged from voter rolls, new identification laws being put into place that dis- that we know as a fact disproportionately affects poor people and people of color. Um, you know, but for some of these laws... Stacey Abrams, for example, would be governor of Georgia. They like that is she lost by a few thousand votes, you know, and tens of thousands of people were purged from these roles. And so that's just another example of like that's happening right now. Voter suppression. I think back to the civil rights movement and we when when you learn about it in school, the civil rights movement of the 60s, where black folks had been given the right to vote, but then they would the folks running the polling places and who were making the laws would come up with these sort of unnecessarily complicated and almost like cartoonishly complicated tests, you know, guess the number of jelly beans in this huge, you know, 10 gallon jar. Yeah. Or Um, like quote the 10th line of the constitution right now. It's like, right. It's like, I don't know what I don't. Yeah. That's, it's an unreasonable ask to, you know, but so I see that kind of stuff is happening right now. Like it's, it's, if you don't have, if your name isn't spelled exactly the same way, including capitalization, including, you know, from your birth certificate to your driver's license to your, you know, some other form of ID that you have, you'll be purged from the rolls. And it's like, or even like if you haven't voted in the last 10 if years. You, right, exactly. It's like, okay, it, that's my right, right to vote or not to vote. Exactly. And, you can't punish me for not voting. Right. And as someone like me whose my name is Jonathan, it is spelled Jonathan by itself is a name that has like four or five different spellings. I have an extra H in the beginning of my my name and it ends in A-N and not O-N. It's like my name is spelled incorrectly in almost every document that I get. So you're saying I'm purged from voter rolls now in these places if my name, if they happen, if the genius that copied over my name didn't spell it right? Like it just, yeah, it is, that's happening right now in our country and and sort of in the same um, the same idea, the citizenship question right. on the 2020 census. On the 2020 census, exactly. That's another one. Call that number six, right? Like, it is, luckily, that was something that was fought back in the courts, and the United States Supreme Court decided it that you cannot ask about citizenship on the 2020 census because the census is meant to count the number of people within this country, not the number of citizens. Um, and folks were afraid that asking about citizenship would um, would chill participation in the census, particularly in in communities with black and brown people, brown folks particularly, who might not be here with proper documentation. And so they would, they'd be less inclined to participate. Thus, funding and apportionment of resources would be uh, 
lessened given uh, to those to those communities. And so that was a huge thing that was fought about in the courts. And it actually ended up, you know, organizations like the ACLU, who we'll hear from later, ended up winning that case. But it was sort of on a fluke, right? Like one of the main people who was involved in getting this on the census passed away and his daughter was going through his files and emails and things and found a bunch of emails and and uh, communications of him saying we're putting this on here because it'll it'll disproportionately affect these people in this way. And so that it sort of was it a sounds fluke. like a poorly made Amazon Prime movie. <laughs> right, but it's our real life. Right, cool. she like found out about it. Right, like sifting through dad's old things. Right. Um. Yeah. Exactly. And so that is just it. Just so happened the court was like, uh, okay, like come on, you guys got to come up with something better than this. But I don't. They will, you know, they will right. come up with something better. And so that's another example. I mean, we can just keep going down the line. Like these, there are restrictive abortion bans that are being put up in these conservative states just so they get challenged. And so they go the whole way to the Supreme Court because they want the Supreme Court to decide on these issues and trip away, if not outright overrule Roe v. Wade, which it stands for the proposition of, of women having the right to to control their own bodies with respect to abortion care. Um, it That's happening currently. So folks are like, you know, folks are caught up on impeachment. Folks are caught up on removing Trump, electing someone else in 2020. Who's the, who's the 2020 Democratic nominee going to be? Those things are all really important, but it just is worth, this is all a long way of saying that like what is on my mind today is this sort of like blast of just straight up challenges to fundamental student uh human rights um i, I was going to say students because i'm just thinking of more now there are there are all sorts of guidance relating to title 9 which is a a gender equity law that relates to higher education um guidance regarding transgender students guidance related to the standard of proof um that someone is found guilty for sexual assault or sexual violence. Um, that stuff is being totally rolled back under Betsy DeVos, Trump's education secretary. Um, and that's just happening. No one's really, I mean, I see people reporting on it. I work in higher ed. And so that's something that I see all the time, but that's just added to the list of, of civil rights violations that are occurring. So what do you say to people who are like, okay, I, I can't, I want to help, but I can't do all of this. So do yeah. I even try or so, just yeah, accept I mean, the fact that, that we suck at being a country? I don't, yeah. yeah, I mean, do something. Do something. You have to do something. All the things we're listing, I'm just, this is off the top of our head, right? Like, so it is the, the, the lists of challenges and civil rights infractions are, are, innumerable they're not like you couldn't even there's no way to fit them all in one episode here much less just this this sort of opening segment of ours so to me it's like there's no way that you could not be involved in any way how is it that you could be involved zero in this you know that's what i my challenge to people it's like you got to get out there of course you can't handle all of these things but find something you're passionate about on the list we we just gave you, we can continue to add to it. I'm not, I don't have to be done because What's crazy though there's so like many more. Like people who like, you're saying you can't, how can you not be involved in any way? 
you know, do something. But there are people who, all the things we just listed, they aren't affected by them in any way. Yeah. Isn't that wild? Yeah. Like, none of the civil rights violations are directed at them or things that they experience a negative effect from. Right. That's wild to me. Yeah. No, and that is, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we say actual genuine intimate relationships with people that are different than you are important from a motivation standpoint because some of this stuff doesn't affect especially i'm thinking white men who are born in this country some of the stuff the things we listed do not affect them you know um in a lot of ways some of them do um but what's their even if they're woke and quote unquote and well-meaning what is their incentive to get involved and to potentially spend money, time, resources, energy on any of this stuff. And what do you do? What do If you want to get involved, what do you do? What do you think? I think it's absurd that there are people who aren't affected by any of these things and that they may not have a motive outside themselves to do anything about it. But since that's the case, the people, at, at some point, if all these things are happening and you aren't doing anything about it, you may not be causing the issues, but you're now a part of the problem. Right. That doesn't mean that, you know, all the straight white men out there, you know, if you can't fix, I don't know, the water in Flint in the next year, you are going straight to hell. No. But if you're not doing anything to help any of these causes, I Sort of hope you're not sleeping too soundly at night. Right. Because oh, you, you just can't sit back and watch other people suffer while you benefit from that suffering. Maybe not directly, but if you don't ever, if the, if the source of water that you, you know, drink from or use every day, if the quality of that water has never crossed your mind ever in your whole life, how lucky are you? That seems so little. There are people who literally are thinking about that 24-7, and that's just one thing. If none of these things affect you and you're doing nothing about it to help other people, I mean, I really just don't have time for you at this point. (laughs) Yeah, so it's one of those things where it's like, look, the very minimum give money to organizations that are fighting these right. things. So give money to the ACLU and look up your local ACLU chapter and see what they're working on. It very well could be something that affects your community in a way that you don't even know about. So money at minimum, if you can spare it. Um, but your time, volunteer. a lot of these organizations that are plugged in that have a masterful expert understanding of what the problem is and what it takes to solve it and to fix it, they're created already and plugged into the networks that they need to be plugged into. Go volunteer your time with them. They need you to operate because they don't have the funding that a for-profit organization does a lot of the time. So go literally hand out pamphlets somewhere on behalf of one of these organizations because that's the type of thing that they need to keep going. Um, But also, in your personal life, you got to be vouching for these issues and bringing them up to people who cast them aside. Remind people at your work that there still are children in cages. Remind people at your job and at around your Christmas and uh, 
New Year's Eve celebration table that there is an administration in office that blatantly is instituting policies that we all know, that no one argues, affects black and brown people more adversely than everyone else. That is like a thing that is happening. There's no argument over that. Um, Remind folks that that's happening and to the extent that they are being neutral or, heaven forbid, supporting that administration, you got your work cut out for you to be in those folks' ears. Um, There are all sorts of things you can do. Um, We're not even, we're just sort of giving sort of the bare minimum here. You can write, you can start a podcast, you can do, you can do things that help expand your footprint and your voice so that if you care and you have a knowledge base and access to, um, you know, a good sort of method to communicate your feelings and communicate your, um, how important these issues are, use it. And And I feel like it's easier for people to feel overwhelmed because it seems like there are a lot of, you know, quote, issues to be concerned about. And there are, but I think it's an important reminder for people that no deed is too small. So, like, literally anything you can do is a start. And then maybe next month you'll be able to do more. Or next year you'll be able to do a little more. Right. I feel like people think, well, if I can only give $10 a month to some, I don't know, organization, that's not going to help them at all. I might as well just not do it. Then you'll never do it. Right. I don't know. I just then you'll like, never give 20. They'll ne- yeah. It, starting. And that $10. As as it is. That $10 might be what they needed to hit their benchmark or to right. hit their, you know, like it sounds so dumb to say, but like, yeah. So I just was worked up and I had sort of a, about civil rights issues, and then I sort of had a spike in that when we had this interview with Reggie Shuford, um, which I'm so excited to get to. Should we get to that, April? Let's do it. Okay, so when we come back, our interview with Executive Director of ACLU Pennsylvania, Reggie Shuford. Well, Reggie, thanks so much for joining us on Black Hand. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so I want to give our, we have a lot we want to talk about with you, um, but I want to first stop and uh, ask if you'd give our listeners a little bit of your sort of personal and professional background and sort of what led you to uh, your role as executive director uh, for the ACLU of Pennsylvania. Happy to do that. So at any point, you should chime in if I'm being long-winded about <laughs> it, or if you want to focus on particular questions um, around my bio. So sure, uh, I'm, I'm happy to provide that background. So let's see, where does it start? Okay, so um, I was born and raised um, in Wilmington, North Carolina. So I'm a Southern boy. Um, <laughs> most of my family remains there. I get home you know, a number of times a year. I still consider that home. Um, I um, was one of five children of a single mother who raised us primarily on welfare. She did some housekeeping on the side. So we were poor. We grew up in public housing. I'm the first person uh, in my family to graduate high school in a couple of generations. And then I went on to, you know, 
college and, and law school. But growing up uh, under those circumstances certainly informed my desire to become a civil rights lawyer. Uh, I witnessed injustices. Even as a young kid, I had a visceral reaction to, to those injustices, even if I can't, um, couldn't identify you know, the term injustice or what that meant, I certainly felt it. But I, uh, and you know, I, I, I observed that, you know, poor people, black people, women, um, you know, just being treated differently. Um, and that really brought me the wrong way. So I um, decided that I would become a lawyer and then ultimately a civil rights lawyer. Now, I had no idea what really a lawyer did and I certainly didn't know <laughs> any, but this is how it really, happened. So I um, I was a young kid. I was very inquisitive. And so whenever anybody came to visit, I would just, you know, get them off in a corner somewhere and just ask them a million questions. What's your favorite color? Do you get along with your siblings? Uh, what's your relationship like with your dad? Can you read me a book? Hmm. And, just, and and so I heard more than one time, slow down, kid, you sound like a lawyer. And so <laughs> literally at age six, I thought, aha, if that's what lawyers do, then that's what I'll do. I'll become a lawyer. And then certainly as I got a little older and understood and witnessed and observed and, you know, experienced injustices and inequality, I was able to understand that I could not just to be a lawyer, but that I could become a civil rights lawyer. And so I've been uh, at the ACLU in Pennsylvania for now just over eight years as an executive director. Um, but I spent 15 years at the National ACLU in New York City working on racial justice uh, and national security cases. That's pretty amazing. So from New York to Pennsylvania, um, are there... Is there a difference in the mission of the ACLU depending on where you're at? And then on a larger scale, is that mission the same as the ACLU's uh, nationwide uh, goal and, and mission? What do you guys really stand for if people have never heard of you? Sure. Happy to, to answer that question because it's not um, the easiest kind of thing to understand. So we have a national office whose primary headquarters are in New York City, which is where I worked for 15 years before coming to the ACLU of Pennsylvania, minus one year where I was in California doing something else for a different organization. Um, and the ACLU's goal is to protect the civil rights and civil liberties of everybody in America, essentially. And so in Pennsylvania, um, the mission is the same, and it's to protect the civil liberties of all Pennsylvanians. Um, and uh, you know, the, the mission, the goals, um, the mission certainly is the same around the country. Um, people, you know, different uh, ACLU state offices, you know, may set different goals depending on climate, circumstance, resources. But by and large, those goals are the same across the country. And so let me talk about Pennsylvania and then um uh, and then I can comment on <clears throat> whether that is consistent with national goals. Um, what I would say um, is that um, the ACLU state offices, like the one I run here in Pennsylvania, have a lot, lot, lot of autonomy, um, and you know, can, you know, are separately legally incorporated organizations. 
known as affiliates of the nationwide organization. And so, so long as we are not um, really um, conflicting with um, national policy, we have a lot of discretion to kind of focus on the issues that we that we want to focus on. Hmm. But as but as I said again, um, a lot there's tremendous overlap around the country. Sure, Massachusetts will differ from Mississippi, will differ from, um, you know, Arizona, in part because of where they are geographically located. But by and large, we share common, um, we share common goals. Um, and so, for example, here in Pennsylvania, one of our top priorities is um, combating mass incarceration uh, and reducing racial disparities in the criminal justice system. And um, there are many ways we're going about trying to do that. Bail reform, prosecutorial prosecutorial accountability, um, probation reform, combating debtors' prisons that send people to jail because they're too poor to pay court fees and fines, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, we call it smart justice. And that, and that is a goal that is uh, consistent uh, across the nation. And people, based on their sort of local circumstances might prioritize different um, areas of the criminal justice system to focus on, but smart justice is a a national priority. Um, Likewise, other issues that we are working on in Pennsylvania are LGBT equality and LGBT rights. Um, Transgender equality is, is something that we have devoted significant resources to trying to, number one, pass statewide non-discrimination legislation, which does not exist in Pennsylvania. Um, There's not a national non-discrimination law either. Um, But Pennsylvania is one of the, perhaps the only state in the Northeast that doesn't have protection, legal protections for uh, members of the LGBT community that would- It's it's a a surprise to hear, but um, in other contexts as well, um, Pennsylvania is not a leader, um, unfortunately. Um, So, but those protections uh, in terms of LGBT equality would be um, to protect someone from from being fired from, you know, in the employment context, uh, from being discriminated against in the housing context from being denied services at a business, say um, a bakery, you know, you name it. So um, yeah, Pennsylvania legs behind. So LGBT equality is another priority. Voting rights is a priority in Pennsylvania. Obviously immigration, um, immigrants' rights, immigration is uh, a big deal in Pennsylvania and likewise around the country. So there's a lot of individual localized autonomy, but again, by and large, there's tremendous overlap in the issues that we have prioritized as a nationwide organization. Sounds like you guys just, you obviously have your hands full because there just seems like there's, you know, there's an infinite number of um, areas that you all could focus on. So I, uh, I, I'm sure prioritizing things and, um, and putting uh, resources in the right place is something that, that uh, a big part of your, I imagine a big part of your role as executive director. Um, I wonder if um, if you could give our listeners uh, some examples of some sort of you know notable six you know legal successes 
that you've that you've experienced and achieved in Pennsylvania and your role there? Um, and that can be legal successes or, or, or otherwise. I wonder what stands out to you. Well, thank you. Thank you for asking that question. So I came uh, to Pennsylvania to be executive director in 2011. And I'm really proud of um, the work of my colleagues. And certainly, um, I absolutely don't take credit for it. Um, but I, it's always a team effort, a collaboration. Um, and um, I want to always lift them up and give them credit for a job well done. They, you know, they come to work uh, every day committed to making people's lives uh, easier and, and making sure that we're protecting um, their rights. Um, so some of the some of the notable cases um, that stand out during my tenure, um, one is that we won marriage equality here in Pennsylvania in 2014, which was a year before it became the law of the land. I remember so that, that. Yeah, very exciting, very proud of that. Um, of course, the very next year, the national ACLU was involved um, in the Supreme Court case, Obergefell, that made um, uh, marriage equality the law of the land. So, um, proud, you know, proud at the state level, but also proud yeah. at the national level as well. And that same year um, in Pennsylvania, we defeated voter ID, um, which was a really hmm. big deal. I mean, I think if anything can be said of, um, um, you know, battles within uh, the black community, it is certainly um, battles against voter suppression, which have hmm. existed um from time immemorial, you know, efforts to disenfranchise black folks, keep them from voting, et cetera. So voter ID would have disproportionately impacted people of color. Um, and I'll just give an example of how that might um, have played out. So our lead plaintiff in that case was a woman by the name of Viviette Applewhite. So she may have been in like 92 at the time. So yeah. she's, she's even older now, but she was a black woman who was born in the South who, like many people, was part of the Great Migration North. Um, but, you know, Black folk um, born in the 20s, um, et cetera, were not often provided birth certificates. Um, and in fact, she did not have one. And so establishing her actual birthday, having legal documentation that the law would have required was beyond her means, not to mention the cost that people would have undertaken to um, try to comply with the law, right. so um, that's you know that's a case that that I'm um, especially proud of as well. Um, and you know we're still fighting voter suppression tactics you know across across the country. Um, so again, that's a longstanding thing that you know advocates who support voting rights will it seems will always be be engaged in. Another case that I'm uh, proud of. Um, here in Pennsylvania is uh, a lawsuit that we filed against the Philadelphia um, Police Department. And so it started in 2010. So it was like a year before I got here, but we've still been involved in it over the past several years. And we sued them for their stop and frisk practices, hmm. which, again, disproportionately targeted Black people, Latino folks. And I think our ongoing litigation against the PPD has resulted, um, thankfully, in a significant reduction in the number of stops. 
However, the the racial disparities still persist. And just by way of example, um, April, you were here at the time. Jonathan, you may not have been living in Philadelphia at the time. But, you know, not long ago, there was this incident happened at Starbucks in Rittenhouse Square. We guys right. remember that? Yep, remember that. Yeah. Right. So, well, I was going to say, April, you used to work <laughs> at that Starbucks. No way. Back before I, this I, happened. I worked for that Starbucks. I actually opened that store, and I worked there for three and a half years. Yeah. I wasn't. Okay. I worked there, of course, at at the time of this incident, and I didn't. I didn't know the people working there at the time. But yeah, that was that's my home store. Wow, I'm su- I'm surprised. It's a, it's a really small world. I don't know if you heard this or mm-hmm. not, and I'll I'll make my point. But the woman who was fired has filed a lawsuit alleging that she was a victim of race discrimination. Anyway, go figure. Um, but part of that litigation is that we um, receive quarterly data on stops and frisks by the Philadelphia Police Department that we monitor and evaluate and analyze. And so the reason that I mentioned Starbucks is because that area in Rittenhouse Square, that area of the city is where the lar- perhaps the largest racial disparities exist in terms of stops and frisks within the city. So I'm not especially surprised that it happened there, but to be perfectly honest, it really could have happened anywhere uh, in the city. And so I'm proud of that litigation because we are forcing change. We still need to combat those racial disparities, but the the fact that um, fewer people are being stopped and frisked is is noteworthy and 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 something that we um, we should be proud of. So let me talk about some non-litigation successes. Um, In 2017, we were a part of an effort to make sure that um, voters in Philadelphia were aware of what's at stake in um, DA races. Um, we believe that district attorneys are the most powerful people in the criminal justice system. Often they have the least amount of accountability and transparency mm-hmm. in the work that they do. Um, and sometimes people can't even name who their district attorneys are. And so, right. you know, the ACLU is a nonpartisan organization and we don't endorse candidates. What we do, though, is want um, voters to you know, be, become informed about what candidates stand for. And so we did a massive canvassing program in 2017 for the district attorney primary um, that, you know, sent people around knocking on doors around Philadelphia, talking about the issues, particularly around smart justice, um, and then inviting people to study up on the candidates to see, you know, which ones um, most uh, reflected, you know, their value systems uh, and their and their best interests. And so, um, at the end of the day, a, you know, a fairly progressive uh, candidate, Larry Krasner, won. Um, right. And um, but but also, we think more people voted in that election who had a better idea of the issues that were that were at, at stake. So, you know, those are things that I'm proud of. Um, and I just also want to point out that. Um, over the years in the legislature, we've pushed back and fought back against um, a lot of um, 
uh, efforts to um, infringe upon a woman's right to choose. I mean, those that those bills always come up every year. We fight we fight back against them, and to date, we've been fairly successful. So there's a lot of things that I'm proud of. Um, I, you know, I'm also proud that we have been able to grow. Uh, when I started at the ACLU in 2011, um, we were a staff of 17. We're now just under 40. Yeah, you know, that's that takes a lot to manage. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, but we largely weathered the storm, um, made made adjustments where appropriate. It's an ongoing kind of conversation to make sure that people feel valued. I'm very interested in people coming to work and feeling valued and respected and a part of a team. Um, and so, but yeah, it's been a really exciting time over my over the past eight years. And so thank you for asking a question that allowed me to reflect on that. Yeah, so it's, Reggie, it's encouraging to hear you, you know, can so easily list, you know, multiple successes um, in your chapter specifically and, and, you know, nationwide. Unfortunately, you know, on the flip side of that, with the successes means there are threats to civil rights and civil liberties, you know, nationwide. Um, which would you consider the most serious of those threats? Um Oof. And, Ready to start. <laughs> and if you, if you, you know, if you might want to focus on um, threats to you know race and racism. Yeah, listen. I mean, let's not. I mean, let's look at the elephant in the room, right? We can't ignore the fact that our our president is um, supported by white supremacists, right? He doesn't necessarily claim. To be one, he may even deny it, but I think he certainly dog whistles at them, and they certainly mm-hmm. see him, <clears throat> excuse me, as one of as one of them, and you know, not particularly subtle about it. He isn't. Um, so I, I I think that he really is the biggest threat to our democracy and certainly to civil rights and civil liberties. And as a result, the ACLU has been involved in over 240 legal actions against him, a lot of which have to do with, you know, immigrants' rights. But that's 240 is astounding um, and but necessary. And I think there will be many more for as long as he is in office. I also think that uh, so people need to be really mindful of of, you know, what's happening at the at the national level, for sure. Um, And then obviously the challenge is that in a in a in a climate such as what exists in Washington, D.C., um, people feel at a local and state level emboldened to kind of try to behave in a similar fashion, fashion like en- enact um, <clears throat> policies and laws, et cetera, pass legislation that likewise curtails people's civil liberties and civil rights. And of course, right. that that applies to the people of color. I often say that even if a policy isn't on its face, racially discriminatory, so many of them disproportionately impact black folks and people of color. And so what I what I say is that, I don't know if you've heard this saying or not, but if America catches a cold, black America catches pneumonia. Mm-hmm. And I think really that is really what that's really what we have been dealing with and what we continue to deal with. The, the kind of exception being that it's so out in the open now in a way that 
it's really kind of shocking in some sense, um, but right. uh, but you know, but not necessarily from a historical perspective. The first time that's happened, um, but you know, it's interesting because you know we like to think of racial progress as being being linear, um, and I think we know that it's not. I think historically, starting with the recon, you know post slavery and Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Movement, etc., and the and, and the election of Barack Obama. That any time there has been significant racial, economic, political power by African Americans, it's been met with backlash. Yep. Some Van Jones calls it white lash or, yeah. or white resentment and retrenchment. I mean, that's just the reality of America. And I think we're living in a period now post Obama where all of those things are happening like yet again. Let me just move on with respect to April's question. So another uh, thing that we need to be aware of too is, um, uh, you know, poverty. Like black folks, for example, are disp- disproportionately impoverished. And so again, even if a law or practice isn't racially discriminatory on its face, the impact can very certainly impact people of color um, disproportionately. And I'll just give an example of, uh, let's talk about smart justice again. I mentioned that that's a top priority of the ACLU of Pennsylvania. So um, cash bail, right? It's used excessively around the country, but certainly here in, in, in Pennsylvania and, and, and just over the summer, actually several months ago, I think it was in March, we sued um, the Philadelphia judicial system over its excessive use of cash bail that keeps people locked up because they're too poor to pay, you know, the cost of bail. And there are other ways that would have people show up in court on their court date that doesn't use or require the use of cash bail. But again, poor people are disproportionately impacted. Another way, poor people and people of color, another um, thing that people need to be mindful of as well is and I mentioned this earlier too, debtor's prison, right? You know, people get um, sent to jail because they can't pay um, fees and fines um, that are assessed them because, you know, they've gotten a ticket for something. Whatever it is, um, they end up getting charged to be, you know, they're, you know, they're required to participate in the criminal justice system, but then they get charged for doing so. And if they right. can't do so, they end up... Um, being sent to jail, which is a really vicious, vicious cycle. Um, so poverty is something that we need, is a is a threat to civil rights and civil liberties. Obviously, we need to be mindful, as I said before, of people's reproductive rights, women's right to choose, voting rights, immigrants' rights, and, and all of those things um, continue to be uh, really at risk if we aren't attentive to um, the efforts of folks who would be inclined to strip away people's rights. And and we have to, you know, we have to be. I've said to folks, you can't you can't win the fight unless you're part of the fight, right? So we have to push back even if the odds seem stacked against us. You know, there are. I'm assuming you know you could go on and on about the the serious threats that you know the ACLU is is combating, but how do you, as an organization, choose which things to to fight against? I I would assume that you know. Do you want to to affect the most people? Um, are you are you? 
is that sort of how the process works? Um, because it seems like it would be endless, but if you do have to choose, like, you know, if we don't, if you don't have the, you know, person power to fight all the things, or do you choose by what, how can you affect the most people positively? Yeah, that's such a great question. Thank you. Yeah, so we're a nonprofit organization, right? So we have limited resources and thank all those folks who support us, join the organization, make donations, but we cannot take on every um, case that is presented to us. And just by way of, of example, in Pennsylvania, we receive you know roughly 5,000 requests for assistance per year. We just don't have the bandwidth to, to the resources to, you know, to honor that. And so um, we have to pick and choose our cases really carefully. And to your point, April, we do so with the goal of having the biggest uh, impact possible. So what we often do is bring what is called, and Jonathan will know this, class actions. Um, um, you know, you know. So we have, for example, in our marriage equality case, we had what maybe sixteen people who were quote unquote named plaintiffs, like officially a part of the lawsuit, named in the lawsuit. Um, but um, it, the lawsuit ultimately, when we won, benefited everybody in Pennsylvania who was a, in a same-sex relationship who wanted to get married. Um, and likewise, in our voter ID litigation, we had maybe five or six, quote unquote, named plaintiffs. But um, when we struck down voter ID, um, everybody who you know, were part of certain classes of people, students, elderly people, the disabled who would be disproportionately impacted, like all of those people benefited from striking down um, the voter ID law. So, yeah, we have to be very selective. We like to certainly be very responsive to people's serious um, civil liberties violations, um, but but we have to be, um, you know, we can't take on all, we can't take on all of those cases. On the other hand, if, you know, something is particularly egregious or if it's likely to be a one-off, but still important to the kind of state or national conversation, um, we, might, we might decide to take that case too. Um, and, um, and two other points um, related to your question. Um, all of that happens within the context of strategic planning. So we like to have set what our set out what our priorities will be over the course of three or four years, and you know, and hopefully th those priorities will reflect what is kind of happening on the ground, what's happening in Pennsylvania that we should be paying attention to. And so we've done pretty well in that regard. The other point I wanted to make is a case that I'm particularly proud of too, um, that I, you know, was in response to an earlier question, um, was a case called Boyertown, and that involves um, a case on behalf of some transgender students and and, and organizations, um, where in fact the Boyertown school district was doing what we believe to be the right thing, which was allowing trans students to use the facilities um, that match their gender identity. Um, and, uh, and so that case made its way all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, um, and the U.S. Supreme Court decided not to take it, so it let our victory in Pennsylvania um, stand. And so that's mm -hmm. a case that I'm, I'm really proud of as well. 
So you uh, you mentioned uh, the Trump administration as uh, you know as a threat, sort of inherent threat to to civil liberties, um, you know, especially on the national level. Um, I wonder if you could give our listeners some examples of policies from the that administration um, where the where the the uh, ACLU became involved, um, because I, I don't think people know how often uh, lawyers, particularly at the ACLU, jump in um, and and bring about real change or or. Uh, you know, protection, strong protections when we see these sort of outlandish things happening in the news. Happy to. So let me just say that um, uh, the ACLU appears before the United States Supreme Court more than any other non-governmental agency or organization. Wow. Yeah. And so we've been doing that. uh, You know, we turn 100 years old next year. We've been doing that for most of our history. Um, and so there's so many <laughs> examples I can name. Right. One of the most recent was our challenge to um, the citizenship question on the 2020 census. Right. So we were at the Supreme Court arguing that, and we won. So I'm happy to point out that there will yeah. not be a mm-hmm. citizenship question on the 2020 census. Um, and as I there think, there shouldn't I, be. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And as I think I mentioned, we've been involved in at least 240 legal actions against the Trump administration um, since he's been in office. Not all of those have been lawsuits per se, but but many of them, most of them have been. But so we were in court against the ban on um, out transgender members of the military. Hmm. Um, we were in court challenging the Muslim ban. Um, we've been the lead lawyers on the family separation policy. Mm-hmm. Um, we were in court just last month or two recently um, arguing that Title VII should be extended to cover um, transgender individuals. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of the... As has, been, as has been our history, the kind of the biggest cases, you know, most important cases of the day, um, we have either been directly involved or we've, or we've served as a friend of the court, such as in um, Brown v. Board of Education. But, you know, historically, we, um, we were a part of Loving v. Virginia was a case we were involved with. Um, right, right. Roby Wade. So Lawrence. for our so yeah. So for our our listeners, can you just get, tell them what who might not be familiar with these cases? Um, tell them what those cases represent. I'll quiz you here. So for Loving the Virginia, for <laughs> yeah, example. <sorry>. I forget, <laughs> I forget. So in 1967, the Supreme Court ruled um, in Loving the Virginia um, that outlawed the ban on interracial marriage, so that people of different races could could marry. Gotcha. And, of course, I think more people know what Roe v. Wade is, I think, um, or at least they should at this point. People who listen to this podcast better know. Um, <laughs> but yes, well, thank you for that. Yeah, and so Roe v. Wade was 1973, and it, it provided the right to an abortion. I mentioned Brown v. Board of Education, which in 1954 outlawed the separate but equal doctrine. Um, yeah, and so Obergefell v. Hodges was 2015, and that... Um, provided for marriage equality across the, the, the nation. So, yeah, I mean, so there have been things here in Pennsylvania, things at the national level, big, big, important cases that the ACLU has been 
a part of, and uh, you know, it's it's work that we should um, we should stop and think about, reflect on, uh, you know, and and be proud of. So, um, I have a question, and I I I don't want you to think that you know one day I I want you to be unemployed, but <laughs> <laughs> here we go. <laughs> but you know, you mentioned the ACLU being around for some you know a hundred years. You, you go from the, you know, was it the Scopes trial in the, oh gosh, 20s, um, yeah, I think, yeah, yeah. Um, dealing with evolution in schools to, um, yeah, you know, Roe v. Wade and everything in between. Do you, do you hope that one day there won't be a need for this type of organization? I mean, that's, it's, that's, idealistic of course but do you think that there's a world in which you know you'll be uh either less busy or or even would have to you know find a different organization because you know we uh, we're doing better as far as as civil rights and liberties are concerned i i don't yeah i think you'll be around forever but do, do you feel that <laughs> one day you know, it, it, you you might take some time. You might be able to take some time off because uh, <laughs> the ACLU is not uh, so uh, you know so necessary. That's a great question. I um I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think the ACLU is going to become obsolete uh, in either of our lifetimes. Uh, unfortunately, um, you know, our the founder, one of the founders of the. ACLU in 2020 said that no fight for civil liberties ever stays won. Um, and just as I mentioned, the, um, the progress followed by backlash and retrenchment with respect to Black economic and political and social um, progress, um, I think the same thing happens in, a, in kind of in a cyclical way with respect to other types of of progress as well. So I think as much as we make progress in our country, um, um, there will there will be backlash and and re- retrenchment. And I and I really do believe that to be uh, the case with 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 African American rights. And I think that you 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 as much as I love to see the ACL, you go to business at some point. I just don't. I think. I think this is going to be an organization that I end up retiring from at some point in the future, and um, so it's going to it's going to out it's going to outlast me. Um, but you know, when you went specifically on the issue of race, um, another threat, you know, with respect to an earlier question you 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 asked, um, is um, that we as a as a society. And as a country, we remain vulnerable to um, racism and the enactment of racist policy um, and practices because we have never really come to terms with our history, the history of, of racism and slavery and what followed in our, in our country. So we've never had a truth and reconciliation process that I think is absolutely essential. And I think until yeah. it happens, we're going to continue to encounter 
generation after generation after generation uh, the very same issues. And so an organization like, and you know, so an, unless that happens, like unless we have truth, which must, which must precede reconciliation, because you got to know what we're talking about here, right? Um, unless we have such a process, then these issues are going to continue to rear their ugly heads and organizations like the ACLU will be necessary to combat some of those challenges. Organizations like LDF and other organizations will be necessary to combat some of these issues because we have not had the conversation or many, many conversations that we need to really have a reckoning with our past. Mm. So... We'll end um, on a question that we ask everyone who is on our podcast, and it's a doozy, but it's important for our listeners who, you know, aren't lawyers, uh, but are anti-racist and want to do something to fight um, racism and threats to, you know, civil rights. What should they be doing to support the ACLU? I hope you don't say that everyone has to go to law school because <laughs> I, I, just, I'm not, no, I won't. I can't do it. It's overrated no. anyway. Yeah, <laughs> no, don't, you don't need to do that. I did it. Jonathan did it. A couple of enough of enough. No, seriously, we do need people. Not not everybody, but who are interested in in these issues, right? Really, who feel really a passion for it. No, go to law school. Go to whatever, you know, whatever professional school, you know, become educated. And, and so combating these issues um, doesn't require a law degree. A law degree can help if that's what you're interested in, but so can a sociology degree or a mathematics degree or an engineering degree. It's about where your passions lie and trying to find a way to plug into these, these efforts at a, at a federal level, at a state level, at a local level. And if you can't work day to day on these issues, fighting racism, et cetera, then donate to organizations like the ACLU and others who do this work in day in, day out. Um, but definitely plug in at your local level. So much stuff is happening, so much really good stuff and bad stuff that you know needs to be confronted. Um, things are happening at the local level that people need to be aware of, that allows them to kind of come together, to mobilize, to have their voices heard to march to protest to to do lobby days at you know at you know their state capitals you name it there's so much that people can do to be involved that doesn't require going to law school that even doesn't always involve donating money but just finding out what's going on and you know and finding a way to plug in and the thing that i would say is more important than really any other thing is people have got to vote they've got to mm -hmm. vote they can't they can't sit out any elections that you know the 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 ones that are off year elections that you know the ones that don't involve a presidential election all of everything every four years every two years the local municipal election whatever people need to vote 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 because that's really the only way they will make they'll make sure that their voices are heard um and that people who are elected um, stand a better chance at representing what their best interests are. So vote, vote, vote. Well, 
Reggie Shuford, Executive Director of ACLU of Pennsylvania, thank you so, so much for taking the time out of your very busy schedule to to come on Black End. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and we cannot thank you enough for, for the work that, that the ACLU is doing. Thank you. I'm honored to be uh, on the podcast. I hope that we can talk again soon. So um, good luck to you. Thanks for doing the podcast. It's very important that people know what these issues are. time for this episode's action item. So our action item to white people is to not make your anti-racist efforts about you. Ooh, that's a good one. Um, I think people have this tendency to want to tell the world what they're doing to help fight, you know, racism and to be an anti-racist, racist, which is great. Um, but I think what also comes with that is wanting black people to know how good you're doing or um, all the good anti-racist work you did hmm. this past week or your just your thoughts about racism and, you know, maybe how wrong you think it is and how sorry you feel for the black and brown people in this country who experience it. All those things are good. All those thoughts and feelings are good. The action item is don't be selfish in your desires to spread that news or that information. If you're working really hard to fight racism, you don't really need to let black people know that. They'll see it. And what about trying to advertise it to the world to get more people on board? You know, I think shouldn't we've said that you should be loud about your anti-racism and you should, right. be, you know, you should be loud to other white people. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much leave black and brown people out of it as far as telling people what you're doing or uh, telling, you know, people your opinions about racism. If you're having a conversation with your friend who's black or brown, you know, and you, of course, you share all your things with them because they're your best friend. That's great. That's different, of course. But your average black and brown person don't really care about your your work because they're strangers to you and they don't care about anything in your life because <laughs> you're, they're a stranger. Just like any other two strangers, you know, you meet on the street. I There's no people, need to be going up to black people and being like, you know, I, you know, I believe black lives matter, man. I really right, do. Right, that's so weird. Like, What a strange thing to say I to feel like white people forget that I think I've said this before that black people are just normal people right so like you don't go up to strangers and say you know what I just want to let you know that I just really support you know Barack Obama and what he's doing <sighs> with our country I just thank you I just want you to know that that's so weird like, like you just me. don't <laughs> that's not something you do so treat your anti-racist work the same Direct your um, excitement and desire to spread the word and to tell people all about the work you're doing to other white people. Get them involved. Get them excited about the work you're doing. Make them proud of you. Black people and brown people will appreciate the work because hopefully our lives will be made better by all that you're doing. I don't need you to come shake my hand on the middle of the street and say Black Lives Matter. 
Like that's weird because I don't know you. I don't know where your hands have been. Right. And in the and and in the context of the, <laughs> I know where your hands been. I just heard that. Um, in the context of this, ask yourself why you have the need to do that. What is your desire to tell black people and brown people about your anti-racism efforts stem from? Is it so they know for their own well-being that people are out here doing this, or so, it, or is it so for you? Is it so you? can tell someone and get affirmation yourself right. from them. Do you want me to you. say thank you? Um, I think that's a big part of this. Right. That's a good one. Yeah, I think it just, I don't know. For some reason, it just, it that sort of irks me because it's, you wouldn't do that in normal conversation about anything else. Right. And black and brown people are strangers to you just like, all other people are strangers if they're not your friends. Right. So treat them like you would treat any other stranger and just do your own thing. Mind your own business. Yeah. This episode of Black Anne was produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins. It was edited by me, and our music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's number five fifthchildmusic.com You can find Black Ann wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, be mindful, be vigilant, and and keep keep asking asking questions. questions.